Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. So good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall with my co-host Bruce Weiner here. And today we are talking to you directly and answering this question. I'm considering infinite banking, but what about dot, dot, dot. And guess what? We're going to answer about 17 questions and it's possible we'll even answer more um, through the course of this conversation today, but we're going to really address the 17 most common questions about infinite banking. Why in the world is there so many? Because there's a lot of questions about infinite banking and we want to make sure that you have your answers all compact in one place. You don't have to hunt and peck. You don't have to go to five different episodes. This is all one succinct location to answer all of your burning questions. So if you're considering infinite banking, you're wondering, I'm really thinking I'm about ready to jump off into making this a reality in my own life, but I'm not quite sure, is it exactly a right fit? I have these hangups right now. I have a challenge, a a particular question that is holding me back. Now is your time to get that question addressed. So this is your chance to do it before investing time with an advisor to find out if this is going to be a good fit for you or not. And I want to just first, before we even jump into any of this, I want you to know that your concerns are absolutely valid. And those, those thinking processes that we have, sometimes we just need to understand what are the facts behind them so that we can have the information to move forward. So we want to let your questions propel you to action, not indecision. And that is the most important thing today. So hopefully we'll answer all the questions that are on your mind. We've had a lot of questions through advisor conversations, through YouTube comments, through Facebook comments, through emails. And at the same time, Maybe we forgot or just are not addressing something that's on your mind, and we'd love for you to ask your questions directly. So if you are on YouTube or Facebook Live, please go ahead and drop your question in the chat. If you are watching this video after we're live, please go ahead and ask the question in a comment as well, and we'll get back to you. And if you are on Clubhouse, we will be taking your questions at the end of the show. So if you'd love to clear up your doubts, find out exactly what to do about your concerns and know what to do next, join in today's conversation. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning. Yeah, this is a, <clears throat> this is a nice uh, topic. I do uh, want everybody to understand that um, you know, we're, we're going to talk logical, logically here. And I understand that not everything, when people have um, questions about a concept, that it's not all about logic for a lot of people. Mm. It's also about emotion. What I've noticed <clears throat> over the years of doing this since basically in the 80s, um, it's really hard to change a person's emotional reaction to some of this stuff. And, you know, um, maybe if you have an emotional reaction, then it's, it's really, you really need to move on to something else. Mm, good, uh, but if you do point. believe that you could, if you, if you do believe that maybe just logically you could get through this, um, and you want, and you really want to un- understand all the pros and cons, then I would continue to listen. But if you're just already emotionally involved in this, um, what I learned from a mentor one time is it's, it, they said that you cannot ra- rationally and logically explain something that is an 
an emotional concept to somebody. So and I, I think that's what happens in today's pol politics world, mm -hmm. which people are very, very familiar with. There's an emotional part of it that people don't even listen. So if you feel like you're that emotionally invested, probably you should just turn, turn this off right now. But if you're logic, if you're not it's totally emotionally invested, I think logically you, you will uh, get a lot out of this, this show. Bruce, I really appreciate that. And I think um, we also just want to say, hey, if you do not like infinite banking, you're welcome to listen to this show, but it's probably not going to benefit you very much. Um, and just we're not in the business of arm wrestling people to make a decision that might be the best for them if it's not what they want to do. So we live in a free society. You are entitled to your own thoughts, your own opinions about things. And so we're not um, wanting this to in any way be the feeling of a debate. And so we just want you to know that if, if you have questions, we'd love to answer them for you. If you don't want to use infinite banking, yes, absolutely. Jump off the, the call right now. So, all right, let's go ahead. I think first it would be really important. Oh, I'm going to actually say this at the top of the show as well. If you are on YouTube specifically, I would love for you to, well, on Facebook as well. If you are listening live, please go ahead and share a comment with us, where are you at with infinite banking? Are you trying to make a decision? Are you already using it? Do you have questions because you have not gotten started yet? Or you have questions and you're already in the process? I'd love to know where you're at. I would also love for you to like this video and subscribe specifically on YouTube. We have content coming out every week like this in a podcast format and even more frequently in a shorter video format. So please like, comment, and subscribe. Now, what is infinite banking and what does it do for you? I think this is really cru crucial that we answer upfront and super simply. So if you are not familiar with infinite banking, it is a strategy of using a financial product in a particular way. So it's a product and a strategy married together. It's not one or the other. The strategy, well, first I'm going to mention the product. The product is using specially designed whole life insurance that is high cash value a dividend paying policy with a mutual company. This life insurance policy lasts your entire life. That's why it's called whole life. And it has a death benefit and it builds up cash value like equity during the course of you owning and using this policy. Now, that cash value and the death benefit are growing with interest that's guaranteed and dividends, which are not guaranteed, but highly anticipated. What this means is that you have a place to store cash that is growing and liquid that you can access and use. So it's available for you. And it also is not going to drop in value. Also, one other thing I want to say uh, on this is that you have the ability to have uninterrupted compounding, which means your money continues to grow even when you use it in another opportunity. That allows you to get this stacking effect where you're doing two things or even more than two, we're going to talk about in a minute, at the same time with the same dollars. Bruce, is there anything I left out or that you want to clarify about what privatized banking is? No, I think most important, it is a, there is a, a product involved. The product is the least important part. Uh, the most important part is the strategy. Very good. Um, I also did want to clarify just up front as well, that the death benefit will always far exceed what you've paid in. So whatever your premiums are, your death benefit's always going to be more than that in terms of what pays out to your heirs, whoever you've listed as a beneficiary when you pass away. There's cash value as well, which is the equity portion inside the policy. 
And this, the cash value portion has a slight backwards contraction. What I mean by that is at first, in the very first years of the policy, you'll have a little bit less available than what you've paid in. And then the cash value grows past what you've paid in and continues to accelerate forward. And I kind of like to think of that as a slingshot, that you need to pull something back in order to allow it to expand and grow forward. And so that's just a an analogy or a mental picture that I'd like you to keep in your mind that the cash value does have that slow, slight dip in the beginning. We're going to address that as well, because that's one of the hangups that people have about infinite banking. So Bruce, do you want to share the, the first? We can even change up the order um, if you have something that you think is the number one most pressing question, but do you want to take the first question that we see most commonly with infinite banking? Yeah. Um, it's basically, you know, there's a fight amongst the equity people um, which I am a part of. I think if you listen to the show, I'm, a, I'm also a financial advisor. Uh, but people, when I say equity, people are talking about uh, uh, investments uh, such as inve- uh, mutual funds and stocks. And, you know, those people are always saying that, you know, I can, you can do better in this particular thing. Um, if, you, if you pick the right stocks, you pick the right mutual funds, if you stay in it, you know, so on and so forth. And so don't put your, your money into whole life. I really, and so then people over the years have really um, built up this idea that, oh, I don't like whole life. Whole life is really bad because they've been taught this through a variety of channels for a long time. What's interesting is probably before the mid middle seventies, this is where everybody would store long-term capital was in the whole, whole life because the stock market and mutual funds wasn't something that was readily available to the general public. And so this whole idea really in the last, say, 40 years has come to where people say, well, I don't like whole life. And then you ask them, why don't you like it? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the most common uh, thing is they will say, well, it's a bad investment. And we're going to get into that later later on. Or they'll say, <clears throat> well, the... Um, you know, I don't, I don't have access to my money and we'll, we'll get to that later on, but it's this perceived notion that you've been actually told about something. You haven't actually researched why it, why you believe these particular thoughts. And so that is one of the evidences um, to actually have this conversation today. Yeah, I think um, that's very well said, Bruce. And I think so many times we have opinions in our mind that we don't even realize that we have. And we don't even, not only do we not realize that we have the opinion, we also have no idea where it came from. We can't articulate, this is what I think. And this is exactly why I think that. And it's really important to not only be aware of your thoughts, but trace them to the source and figure out, well, was that just hearsay? Was it someone else's opinion? Why do I think this? And I think that's a really good starting point for this conversation. So um, what I would say, Bruce, you you brought this up first. So just that that first common concern or question, I don't like whole life insurance. Um, what are you basing that opinion on? Compared to what? What do you not like it compared to? What's really important is that you need to understand before any products, before we bring any product to the table at all, you need to think what is the purpose of my money. And Bruce, you and your team at E3 have been fantastic at asking people this question and also reminding me on a regular basis that this is the most important thing when it comes to dealing with money. What is the purpose of your money? And so if you are looking at, well, I want my money to grow. 
I want it to be available for me. I want to be able to use it for emergencies. I want to build investment capital so that I can have money to invest. I want cash reserves so I can lean on that for my business. Those are purposes of your money. Maybe you want to put your kids in college. Maybe you want to increase retirement income. Those are purposes of your money. And if you can figure out first, what is the purpose I want my money to do? Then we can backtrack and say, okay, what products best serve that? And then we're not starting from, oh, I like this product. I like that product. I like this product over here. Because when we're just talking about products, we can get really disconnected from what they really mean or even do for us. And so first you need to know what is the principle that you're trying to accomplish? What's the best strategy to accomplish that principle? And then what's the best financial product that does that strategy? So we'll leave that one there. What about Bruce? I feel like we see this all the time. I don't need insurance. I think that's the next, I would say that's number two. Um, I don't need insurance. What would you say to that? Well, I mean, that depends on what you what you call insurance and what the purpose of insurance is in your life. You know, if 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 you are saying I don't need insurance because I have nobody to actually worries about my income producing ability, like a single person, then you're right. You may not need insurance if something would have happened to your life, but most people when they say I don't need insurance is they will say something like, uh, yeah, because I have these other assets that are going to take care of my loved ones. Um, if I were to pass away, if I were to die. And so they, they would say that, um, especially a single person, um, that has a child, um, but they think, Oh, but, but I have a lot of assets already and my child will get those assets, uh, or a, couple that do, do not have any children and both couples work and they say, well, you know, even if I died, then my spouse will, you know, they still have their job and it really is not that big a deal. I say, we're not talking about needing in this situation. We're talking yes. about what you want. Yes. And what you want may be c- completely different than what you need. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think is what people don't understand when they say this is, well, you may not need the insurance because you think that your wife or your spouse or your children have enough other assets, but it's not about what they only need <laughs> because you're saying, I always tell the clients when they talk about this, oh, she'll be all right or he'll be all right if I die. Uh, well, that's, is that all you want is for them to be okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, or would you like them to be able to live a life? Um, without you, that is actually maybe even enhanced a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then people always say, well, they joke around, well, I don't want to be worth more dead than I am alive. And then I tell them what an underwriter told me a long time ago is we never create estates, we only protect estates. In other words, you can never be worth more dead than you are alive. The insurance company would not allow that to happen. So <clears throat> not needing insurance is um, is not the correct answer is do you want everything that comes with insurance? Not only the financial part of it, but the peace of mind part of it. Yes. I think what's interesting, Bruce, um, <clears throat> I've shared this before, but Lucas and I, when we first were married, this was over, oh gosh, I can never calculate exactly. We were married in 06. I think it was 15 years now. Um, yes. This, this coming up year will be our 15 year anniversary. So 
we just had a term policy on him that was $50,000. And we thought that's sufficient. I can bury him if he passes away and we don't need any insurance on me because I'm not working. And at the time, honestly, both of us were in school. So neither one of us were working, but that was our level of understanding of our value and the value of life insurance at that time. So we have even had our own personal evolution and journey in this regard. So the idea is not the minimum as Bruce, you were just saying, but what is the greatest that you can create for your family and loved ones? And they will absolutely not give you more insurance than you're worth and your human life value. The other thing I would say about that is that it's actually more expensive to self-insure, which is what most people think they can do. But here's the thing. If you had say $50 million of assets and you say, well, I have so much in assets, I don't need insurance. What happens when you have a catastrophe happen that insurance would normally cover you like say say it was for a house well i have a whole house it's paid for i don't need homeowners insurance anymore you wouldn't say that you wouldn't then say well if the house burns up then i'm just going to i have so much money i can just go rebuild you would have to use up your assets to do that what you instead want to think about is how to get the most benefit and have your money go the furthest and so self-insuring means you would have to use your assets to and eat them up to replenish a loss. So instead of that, if you have the assets plus insurance, now you're in a position with a lot more freedom and flexibility because you can use the insurance to cover your loss of your life when you pass away. You can also accelerate the assets and get more income from them. So the ideal position is to have both. Anything you wanna clarify on that, Bruce? No, I think it's great. All right. So this kind of comes back a little bit to the first one that we talked about, but number three, I would say I, number three, let me phrase this correctly. Number three of the questions that we hear about infinite banking is, I think I could get better returns in the stock market. And what I would say top of mind to that really is that investments are over here. Insurance is over here. It is not a comparison. You cannot compare insurance to investments. The reason is that I like to think very visually. In my brain, I see two tanks. I see a red tank over here, which is risk, which means this is an investment I can put money in. I can grow my money perhaps maybe faster, but there's a risk of loss. That's what risk means. And over here, I have this green tank. That green tank is savings, a savings vehicle. This is um, CDs. This is a money market. This is a savings account. This is money in the safe or in the bank or in the, Uh, you know, under the mattress or something. This is money that's not going to drop in value. Savings and investments, two completely separate things. In a savings account or savings asset, you're not losing value. And life insurance really needs to be classified over here in the savings account tank. So you're thinking about it in terms of how does this relate to other places to store cash, not how does it relate to an investment? Bruce, I could go on and on about that. Is there anything well, else you want to share there? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you can do this with a lot of things. Uh, the realist, people that are zealots about real estate will point to the fact that they get better than stock market returns. Um, but you know, you can't even compare those because real estate is an illiquid um, investment, where the, uh, a stock or a mutual fund is a liquid investment. So you really even can't compare those two uh, items. It's, it's uh, what are you really trying to accomplish in your financial life? Um, what I find interesting is <clears throat> uh, the potential for 
greater returns is is there. It's been proven that it's there, the potential. Um, but as Warren Buffett has been quoted, I don't even know if this people quote him the saying this all the time. I don't know if he actually said it, because a lot of times quotes aren't uh, <laughs> actually said by the person, but they're just attributed. He was asked, you know, why do people, um, if they are invested in the stock market, why don't they get the kind of returns that you get with Berkshire Hathaway? And he says, well, it's because people really don't want to get rich slowly. And that is what happens with, um, with life insurance is that you actually get rich slowly. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're a person that has the personality of, of uh, really a risk taker, taker, then yeah, you're not going to necessarily see the value, although we could show you how you could actually have both values in your life, taking a risk in the stock market and doing the whole life insurance. And, and uh, if you go back to our Dr. Wade Fowl um, podcast, you're going to see how Dr. Wade has actually mathematically proven this, you know, going forward. So yeah. Um, it's really it comes down to your viewpoint um, about stocks and other investments, but we say that the whole life is not an investment because it's without ri- uh, risk. That's awesome, and I think it's very interesting. Again, you talked about getting rich quickly, getting rich slowly. What's interesting is that if you are looking to just accelerate wealth as quickly as possible, sometimes you're thinking more about the short term rather than the long term, and ultimately, the people who love infinite banking are the people who are willing to say, I want to build the fundamentals. I want to do this right. And I want long-term guarantees and I want steady growth and I want something I can depend on. Now, if that's not you, infinite banking is probably not for you. But if you are the person who is willing to commit to the long game and doing something that lasts, not just something that might have a spike today, might make you a millionaire tomorrow, but you could lose all the money the next day, you're really looking for something with steady, predictable guarantees that you can depend on. And the interesting thing about it is though, with infinite banking, you're using that as a platform or as a foundation. That doesn't mean that all, it's, it's not the only vehicle you're using. It's not that all of my money is in life insurance and I'm never doing anything else with it because that's just life insurance. That's actually not infinite banking. Infinite banking is when you have this steady, consistent, predictable, compound, uninterrupted, growing asset over here. And then we leverage against it by borrowing against that capital and putting it to work in other opportunities. And now I'm earning a return in two places at the same time. And now I'm actually accelerating even faster than if I had just invested only in the investment in the first place. So it's a matter of thinking differently about how to accomplish your results or accomplish your goals in a more consistent and mathematical and logical way. All right. So I would say number four, I don't want to lose access to some of my cash right away. I think this is probably, if you really get down to it, I would say probably the number one um, thorn in the flesh, the number one uh, friction point that a lot of people see with infinite banking and they, they look at it, they evaluate, they say, look, I can't access all of the capital I put in in year one or even year two. By year three and four, it's kind of getting a little bit better. But it's challenging to look past that initial drop in liquidity to say, okay, this really is for my benefit, but I think sometimes that's just the the biggest tension point. 
So Bruce, let's talk about that one. Yeah, this is a this this one to me is is really about the emotional um, response you get to this because it's not logical when you think about it. Let's say a person has a million dollars in savings account in the bank, and they they're contemplating moving that money over a period of time. Let's say one hundred thousand dollars over ten years into a specially designed whole life insurance contract. The way we design the, the, the starting point of our designs will have you ac- being able to access 75% of the first year's premium. Well, let's just do a little math here. So we, you still have 100,000 100, uh, 100, times nine or $900,000 in your savings account. And you have access to 75,000 from your whole life insurance contract. So that's Mm $975,000. So I I hear this all the time. Well, I'm giving up 25% of my liquidity. No, you're only giving up 25% of liquidity of your first year premium, but you still have $975,000 or 97.5% of liquidity. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. You're only losing 3.5% of your liquidity. Now, I challenge people when they say, well, I don't even want to lose 3.5%. I said, how did you get a million dollars in your savings account? You got a million dollars in your savings account because you have good money habits. Mm-hmm. Good money habits would mean that you will never actually go below a floor in your particular savings accounts. And I bet you that floor is not $25,000, which is what you're haggling over in your mind right now, that you don't have access to this $25,000. So if you can think about it logically, and then in the next year, you transfer another 100000 and closer to 80% of your money is available. So now you have 980000 Now you're going to only give up 2% of your liquidity. And along the way, you're actually in the, you're right back into the same position liquidity-wise after about year seven. But it's once again, we're going from three and a half down to only maybe in year five, down to 1% lack of liquidity, mm-hmm. and then a half percent, then 0.3%. And then year seven, you're going to about 100% liquidity from what you have in the bank and in your cash valued life insurance. The difference is everything now is growing tax-free. You have a leveraged death benefit. You, you, you don't interrupt the compounding effect if you use the money in the bank. So logically, if you look at your total liquidity, which you would not have given up by by using that total million dollars somewhere else anyway mm-hmm. then you you could you ought to be able to get over this uh, uh, reason that that is really bothering you you know it's really interesting to me and I'm gonna totally misquote this I wish I had looked it up and thought this through in advance but there's a st- um, a study that's done with children it's a psychology study and they put the kids in the room and they give them one marshmallow and they, I'm sure you've heard of this, Bruce. And they say, you can eat this marshmallow right away, but if you wait for, I don't know, one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is, um, we'll give you two afterwards. Uh, is, I'm, I'm on track with the idea, but do you know the technical details? Oh, yeah, I've, of the I've, I've seen it. Yeah. So they basically, they, they tell a, a young child, young, like five years old, six years old, and then they put a uh, marshmallow in front of them and they say, um, we're leaving the room right now. Um, if you do not eat this marshmallow, we'll bring you two more or one more marshmallow back and you can actually have two if you wait like three minutes. Okay. I wasn't sure about the length of time exactly, but 
So the idea though, is that they tracked these kids, their ability to delay gratification and wait for something better in the future. And they realized that that tracks over into long-term life success. And again, I don't know all the, the full details on the story, but the idea is that if you can be patient with something that seems a little bit challenging or constrictive or hard right now, you will have a payoff in the future. And life insurance is very specifically like this. It, it gives you the ability to recognize there is a lack of liquidity in the earliest years. You're paying for, um, Bruce, you say this all the time, but you're paying for the um, home office building to run. You're paying for the cost of underwriting. You're paying for commissions to the agent who educated you on using this product in the first place. And when you think about those costs, it drags down your liquidity. So you have a little bit less than what you put in, in the earliest years. And that instead though, if you have this curve of here's the amount of money I've funded into the policy, my paid in capital, your cash value is a little bit less than that in a few early years. And then there's this break even or this crossover point where beyond that date, everything that you've paid in now will be exceeded by the cash value. What do I mean by that? I mean that once you hit that break-even point, and for you, it depends on your policy design, your age, your health, when you start the policy, say that is exactly in year um, five and six months, uh, five and a half years. At that point, everything else that you put into the policy will be growing by more than what you put in. What that means is that I've, say by that date, I've funded $100,000 into this policy. Now I have access to $104,000. And then by the next year, maybe I've put in 120,000. I have access to $130,000 of cash value. What that means is it's continuing to get better and better and better the longer you have this policy. And actually, uh, we had Doug Laudmel on the show a couple of months back, and he talked about uh, your asset protection is something like cement that always continues to dry and get better and better and better and stronger and stronger and harder with age. And even after it's been settled for numerous years, it continues to harden and harden. And life insurance is like that. When you have a properly designed life insurance policy, it continues to improve and get better and better and better the longer you hold that policy. So if you can look at the long-term benefit and you can realize that that short trade-off in the beginning is worth the tremendous advantage of long-term growth and liquidity in this death benefit that's far greater than the amount you paid into the policy in the years out into the future. That's something that for me, I'm totally willing to say, I'm going to give up a little bit now to get that huge benefit in the future. All right. We are going to have to move a little quicker here. So here's the next question. I already have a policy, but I'm not sure it's a good one. Bruce, how do we answer this? Well, it's it depends on what your definition of good is. Mm-hmm. Um, I've yet to see a whole life of uh, insurance policy um, that I would consider um, giving up. And in fact, I say this to clients all the time. Oh, if you're going to give that up, uh, I'll I'll pay you the cash out of it. And you just make me the owner and beneficiary. (laughs) And people are like, they're taken back by that. And I said, no, I'm serious. You got $20,000 in here. You're going to surrender. You're going to get 20,000. I'll hand you the 20,000. I'll write you a check for 20,000 right now. You make me the owner and the beneficiary. And they can't figure out why. And I tell them right now, there's no way that you can actually get this mature policy uh, from day one. So why would you be giving it up and starting all over again? Um, even if it was 100% base, which we don't have time to get into that right now. 
Um, matter of fact, uh, we had a client the other day that you know came to me and said, you know, I'm really not worried about the early cash value. I'm more worried about the death benefit. Mm. So that that changes the design uh, of what you're trying to accomplish. So yeah, it's uh, depends on what you call good. A lot of times people will will contact us and say, I don't think I have the greatest design. And I'll say, well, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. um, if you just want early cash value um, and don't and don't even worry about what's going on in the future as far as potential give up on dividends, potential give up on death benefit, then yeah, maybe you don't have the, the best uh, uh, design. But to start over, that's probably not going to uh, get you where you you are right now, right away. So why would you start over? So 1031 exchanges, what we call it in the industry, really don't happen very often from whole life to whole life. They happen more from the different other types of permanent policies, such as universal life, index universal life, and mm -hmm. variable universal life. So um, once again, I think it's just a definition of what is good. That's great. That's great. We'll also probably bring something else up in a future question here that might answer that question for you if you had a specific angle on that as well. So I want to tell you number six is um, I have heard that there's a that I always need a certain policy design, but different people say different designs. And this is another big friction point in the industry. And I'll just um, I'm going to lay out a very quick framework for this, and then Bruce, I'll let you take it from here. So there is different policy designs, specifically when it comes to how much base and how much paid up additions, which is a rider that you can add on that accelerates your cash value. Some people say you have to have only 10% base and 90% paid up additions in terms of how much your premium is structured into two different kinds of premium or into these two different kinds of um, funding into the policy. Some people will say, well, you can have 100% base policy and no paid up additions. So really that's kind of the full spectrum. You can't really go to 100% paid up additions with no base policy. So that's the full range. If you went from the most base premium to the least base premium that you can get into a policy, what does that mean? On one hand, you're going to have more death benefit, more dividend growth long-term, and you're going to have less early cash value. On the other side, you're going to have lesser death benefit, less dividend growth over time, and you're going to have much more early cash value. So here's the thing. Is there one way and only one way, Bruce, that always works for everybody, point blank, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your money, unless you have this one exact design? Is that true? <laughs> No, no it, it's not true at all. But and one of the things I'd like to point out um, is the people that advocate this is the only design. And there's there's a couple of groups out there that say this is the only design. What I find interesting about those groups is they're um, headed up by very young personnel, and I'm amazed at how very young personnel feel like they've already had they've already got everything figured out in this world. The other thing I tell people is that. Um, if you go with a 10% base and that's the lowest that an insurance company will allow you to do, why won't they allow you to go to 9% or 8% or 5%? It's because the insurance company feels like it's a detriment to them to do it. Not necessarily because it's bad for the insurance company directly. It's actually, from what I've, my research is, that they find that people that are doing those kind of designs are actually short-term minded and we're more likely to give up the policy in the future. And that 
actually gives them bad publicity for that particular insurance company. There are some other things that you have to do that can cause the policy not to perform. Uh, when you only do 10% base, it can actually cause a mech or it will not perform as well going into the future. So that's another reason why companies don't do it. Now, 100% base, there's some reasons that you would want to do that. It's, it's the most guaranteed um, death benefit that you can get. Then at the Nelson Nash Institute, uh, where the infinite banking concept was originated, um, Nelson always said to start with about 30% base and about 70% PUAs. But he always says start there mm -hmm. um, because he believed that was the best blending amount to get the, the best overall performance of everything. The, the PUAs available, the, the base um, death benefit, the, the lesser amount of term insurance, and then also if interest rates do change in the future, you have the greatest, um, and, and interest rates have always changed. Mm -hmm. And since we're in the lowest interest rate environment we've been since World War I, and actually, or World War II, excuse me, but actually we're in the lowest sustained interest rate environment that we've ever been in, then interest rates can basically only go go up that um, too small of a base will actually hinder growth into the future. So yeah, this is a very interesting thing. Um, really what I've noticed in the industry too is people are not taking a full snapshot of, of what a person's financial picture is looking yes. like. They're only really worried about what the first year premium is. And then they say, well, yeah, at 10% base, then you have a lot more flexibility. Well, when you're, when you're looking at it like that, what you're saying is, I'm really not worried about long-term planning. I'm only worried about short-term planning. Mm -hmm. And once again, I, we don't believe that this is a short-term solution for anything. Absolutely. Okay. So we've got a lot of directions we could go here. Um, we have some comments on the um, YouTube live stream. So this was from earlier. James Trader, um, I think has most of these comments here. So one said, but they're incomparable apples and oranges. Whole life isn't an investment. That was before we addressed that. So we came back to that. The purpose of my money. I love this articulation, great articulation of the purpose of your money. I want to spend my money and keep it too. And honestly, infinite banking allows you to do that. So let's continue on down. He says, load your bank tank, then take a loan and go play the stock market game or invest in real estate just to pro or just procrastinate and dream like so many do. <laughs> Very well said. I mean, when you start a life insurance policy, you're building the foundation. And then yes, you can borrow against that and go put your money in something else that you think is going to have a high return. And then if you lose that money and you're not able to repay your loan, then you just have an outstanding loan or you make money and you're able to repay that policy loan and then go recycle the money and do it again, you're not going to lose the death benefit and the values of the policy by doing it that way. Instead of, I don't know what some people do is like you said, just uh, procrastinate and dream. Um, he said, at least you'll be earning better than 0.0001. I wanted to make sure I read the right number of zeros in a savings account. Yes. Um, Bruce, my question is how can I transfer all $1 million in year one without making my policy turning it into an annuity, can I prepay multiple years now? Uh, the, the short answer is no, you cannot do that um, without making it. Uh, there's, yes. no, there's no way to prepay it. This is exactly what the IRS, why the IRS put in the modified endowment contract rules because they wanted this to act like um, an insurance policy. 
uh, in order to get these benefits. If, if you're only putting in $1 million right away and don't have a plan to continue to, to put money in, i.e. additional premium, then mm-hmm. what you you basically have is an investment. And you can do it. And there are cases I've done it with for estate planning where we just take a single premium and we buy a large insurance policy with a single premium without the intent of accessing the cash value because we are doing it for estate planning purposes to pay estate taxes into the future. So there is a, there is a place for it, but not if you're going to um, want to access the cash. Good, good. Okay. Also question, what if I want to move from a smaller policy to a larger policy? I love this question because so many people in the infinite banking space do exactly that, but it's not moving from one policy to another. It is adding on additional policies. So Bruce, you're a key example. I think you said you have four policies in your... Well, I have four just with Lafayette Life. I have six total. Okay. Um, So six life insurance policies. My husband and I have four policies. Now, not all of those are whole life but we plan to convert and add on more whole life policies in our family banking system as well. I call it family banking because there's multiple reasons around that, but it's using infinite banking within your family to continue to grow wealth over time. So you can add on policies. You do not have to cancel your first policy in order to get a Yeah. They may have been talking about 1031 in one whole life into another whole life. Mm. And um, like like I said, I've looked at that in the, in the past um, it normally does not work because you're restarting, you're restarting some of the lack of liquidity, although almost all the 1031 is liquid at that time. Uh, but it usually doesn't make any sense to 1031. It just makes sense to go ahead and, and start a new one. Um, to go In addition. But you, yeah, you certainly can look at that. Now, here is the last question that I'm going to read, and this goes into the next one we're going to discuss. So the question is, but doesn't a 3070 reduce my cash value available first year? So, yes, because you're not going to have as much as if you had done 90% paid up additions in the first year. Sure. I mean, we could say you could go all the way to 90% base and only 10% PUAs. Absolutely. Um, But then once again, you know, I know this question comes up with a lot of people that want to invest in real estate and they mm-hmm. say, oh yeah, but I want all this money to be available and then I'm going to go do my real estate. And I say, well, but then you're putting it into your real estate that is not liquid. So um, that's, a, that's a lack of liquidity there. What are you really looking for in your 90-10 is, hey, I basically am not looking for the long-term growth of the policy as much because the base dividend is going to affect the majority of the dividend in the future. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, it's funny when we, when you see these illustrated, they will show you Oh, look how great this is. Uh, after 50 years, it's, you're going to have this amount of money, but they're presuming that interest rates are not going to change over the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, if interest rates move, I, I said this to a client the other day, and I actually proved this from uh, other illustrations we've had in the past. You know, if if dividends are sitting at five percent, which they are, I'm, I'm, uh, which they are with many of the major carriers right now, um, and they go to seven and a half percent, which I don't think is crazy because they were at seven and a half percent about ten years ago, then people say, how you know how much of an increase is that? 
And people say, oh, yeah, that's a two and a half percent increase. And, and as Todd Lankford has taught us over and over again, that's not a two two and a half percent increase. That's a 50 percent increase. So your 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 money, your dividends actually increase by 50 percent. So if you were to get a five thousand dollar dividend one year and it goes up to seven and a half percent, you actually get a, a seventy five hundred dollar dividend. But here's the key. Once the dividend is declared, it's guaranteed and it compounds on top of that. Mm-hmm. So the next year in the illustration, you would have seen it only on $5,000. But now because it goes up to $7,500, you are going to get interest and dividends on the $7,500 that's in there, not the $5,000 that was originally illustrated. And the compounding just takes off. In this particular illustration, I was showing a person from the past. Um, it was illustrated that after 12 years, they were going to get $4,000. But in fact, in a rising interest rate environment, they were going to get 12400 So it was, it was uh, three times as much. Wow. And that was because of the compounding effect on top of it. So yeah, short term, if you want to look at this short term, go ahead. Uh, but I just think it's a really bad way of looking at it. Uh, just to bring you up another point, uh, I have a friend who started a bank. And um, an actual bank, a, an actual bank, mm-hmm. and they had to put up twenty million dollars um, in the state um, in a trust, and they then they got a fixed response. Uh, but it took ten; they held the money for ten years uh, as the banking charter was um, completed over a ten-year period. That is, I've heard you tell that before, yeah. but that is just, I mean, astronomical to think about. In, I mean, we don't have. You don't have to capitalize your infinite banking policy with $20 million and hold it up for 10 years. That's like gigantic compared to the lack of liquidity in an infinite right. banking policy. So if, a, if people think that's worth it for, for a bank, a real bank, a retail bank, then having a little bit of la- lack of liquidity the first couple of years, I think, is not that big a deal to overcome. Absolutely. And um, yeah, so Bruce was sharing that Dividends are paid more on the base policy in the future, well, at all points in the policy, than they are on the paid-up additions. And that is just something really interesting and one reason to have a strong base in your policy. Yeah, if you don't uh, think, and I always say, and I'm, if you don't think interest rates are going to go up, then obviously that premise doesn't hold true. True. I, I tend to think interest rates are going to eventually go up. They always, they always I don't have. think they can stay down forever. And I don't think they can go much more negative than they have, than they currently are. I mean, you know, this one falls in line with what we just talked about. And I think we're probably going to stop either here or on the next one. So we're not going to get through 17 today. Uh, But I think this has been a really good discussion and we'll just pick this back up next time. So the next thing, this would probably be number seven, somebody would say is I don't want to overpay. And I think this goes right in line with the policy design. And they say, well, you know, I don't want to pay more than I need to for this whole life insurance policy. And so then we can have that mindset from shopping at the grocery store and you say, well, these two, I don't know, containers of chicken soup stock cost $5 over here or $2 over here. Okay. But what's the difference? Well, maybe one's organic and has, um, I don't even know it's healthier for you and low sodium or something. And the other one is like full of chemicals and ingredients you can't name and MSG and all this crazy stuff. So maybe that's the difference. Um, but really what's interesting here is I feel like this is a sensitive 
issue as well. And it goes into policy design. I think um, when you talk about overpaying, you can think about the balance of base to PUA. And when I've heard people say, well, you don't have to put in so much, um, so much total premium into get that specific death benefit. You could have paid less premium. And what's interesting is with a whole life policy, you want to overfund it. You want to pay as much as possible for that death benefit without going over the MEC limit. And that's modified endowment contract limit. And what that means is that for a certain amount of death benefit, you don't want to pay more than what the IRS allows you to pay, but anything up to that is going to give you the maximum benefit. If you think about paying as little as possible for that death benefit, that's going to be a term policy, which is going to have a death benefit only no living benefits. And the more you pay up to that threshold is going to allow you to have the most benefits to use during your life. Bruce, is there anything you want to add on to that? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't understand. I mean, this is, this is one of the things I think is very difficult for people to overcome. And if they can't overcome it, then they just need to move on because I don't think you ever overpay for anything. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, That's I'm a very a, good point. I'm a true free market, a capitalist kind of thinking person. So if, if one company was a lot better than another company on every aspect, then the other companies would have to bring up every aspect to match that company. Because mm-hmm. so, we, we hear this all the time from people. They say, oh, well, I want to use this company because I heard they had greater dividends. And we say, well, yeah, but are they applying those dividends the same way the other company is because there's no uh, standard way of applying dividends? Or person will say, I want to use this company because they are um, highly rated. And I said, well, is there really that much difference between uh, a 100 rated company and a, and a 92 rated company? Um, and you might say, well, that's 8%, but does the 92 actually going to go under? It's still highly rated A plus company. Uh, the reason they get those different ratings is because of how much they have in their reserves, how much they have as far as death benefit promises, promised um, how much they have in their portfolio, uh, um, portfolio investment portfolio, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of reasons for this. I really don't understand in a free market society um, how you can ever overpay. These companies have been around for over 115 years. Uh, That's the least amount that we've actually worked with. And the most amount has been around since for 172 years. So you can't stay around that long by, by charging more than, the, than what you should be charging. Absolutely. All right. So Bruce, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up here. I think we have covered a lot of ground. Um, we haven't even done half of the, the questions that we wanted to address today. So we'll just go ahead and pick this right back up next week. You know where to find us. This will be on Facebook and YouTube at 10 on next Wednesday, 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern time. And if you have questions in the meantime, we'd love to hear your questions. You can comment below on Facebook or YouTube. We will have this episode going live on the podcast channels in about six weeks or so. And you're welcome to always listen there. That's on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I guess it's called now, and Google Play and all those channels. Now, if you are on YouTube, please like and subscribe. If you like this video and you're interested in more content like this, I think it's really important for anyone who is considering a big move in their financial life specifically 
to have the knowledge to make decisions and not just be guessing and not just having to trust someone else. So the reason that we're sharing this with you is that we don't want anyone coming to us and just saying, oh, well, Bruce, Rachel, the Money Advantage team, whatever you say, we'll just take exactly what you say. We want you to understand what you're buying, what you're doing with your financial life and why you're doing it that way so that you can have the most advantage and feel like you're in control. You're riding that horse of your financial life yourself. You're not just you know, dragging along on a rope behind it, hoping things work out. And so this is really about you taking control and ownership. And that's our best way to be able to do that, to provide the education. Now, um, Bruce, anything you want to share in closing before I wrap us up completely? Yeah, I do. I, I do want to just emphasize the fact that if, um, if you have any doubts, but you're like, okay, uh, I really don't think this is for me, but you know, logically it makes sense. Um, you're going to have to get over that mindset before you, you jump into this because I've, I've seen this over the years where after four years, a person says, gosh, you know, if I would have taken this money here, I'm not even to them a break even point. I would have put it to the stock market and look at Facebook. I could have made all or Tesla. I could have made all this money on Tesla. Because all they do is pull something out of a snapshot of time and, and they say, this is what could have happened. I could come back and say, yes, you could have put it in something else and you could have lost all the money. Mm-hmm. We can play this game all day long. You have to really be invested and believe that this is not an investment. It's a, it's a place, a safe place to store your money until you have the next opportunity or you shouldn't, shouldn't be doing it. There are, I just thought of something that just happened this week. There are times that you might give up your whole life insurance contract. And we actually had one this year after four years. But here it's a very interesting thing. Um, when we originally did it on the husband, uh, they, they discovered that he had a brain aneurysm. So he wasn't eligible for insurance. And so he loved the concept of the infinite banking concept. So we did it on his wife. In the meantime, he just discovered that the term insurance, which we had asked him if it was convertible, he said he just said no. And we said, well, make sure you check. And he, he said he checked. Of course, this is what happens in the industry all, all the time is he was reassigned a different agent and the different agent thought he had a different product. Mm. He, just, he just sat down with another agent and discovered that it was actually convertible. So because he is at risk, we then took the cash value of the whole life insurance of his wife and actually gave up the entire amount. We thought about taking a loan, but um, he, was, he wanted to just go ahead and get as much possible. And we funded his uh, conversion, even though we didn't make any money off of it. Because that was what was best to protect his family because he had a brain aneurysm and mm-hmm. he could die at any particular time. So these are, these, are, there's, these are suggestions about guidelines. We always say that. We have no hard, fast rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you have anybody out there that's saying, oh, don't invest in whole life insurance. One, they don't understand it's a savings vehicle. Or don't do that design. You can only do this. Those are hard, fast rules. Mm-hmm. Can companies or individuals really have hard, fast rules for all of the 330 million people in, in the United States? I would ask yourself that particular question. 
That is a very, very good ending point. And um, Bruce, thank you for sharing. I think it's so interesting that you need to recognize you have a particular financial picture. You have a particular personality. You have particular um, goals and things that you want to accomplish in your life. You have a set of family members in your life that you all have different personalities as well and maybe different um, skill sets and things that they'll accomplish and you need to work in what is best for you and your family. So um, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for joining us live wherever you are. And uh, I just wanted to let you know in closing that we've been talking today about infinite banking, but infinite banking is just one part of a much bigger process and journey to building time and money freedom. And ultimately, we're not just wanting people to do infinite banking because infinite banking is awesome. It is but it helps you do everything else better. First, you need to keep as much of the money that you make as possible. The reason I'm showing this is because I'm thinking of it as three layers of a foundation or of a house. I'm building the foundation first and that's keeping as much of the money that I make as possible. And then I wanna protect that money. And then I wanna use my capital to build as much wealth as possible and streams of income, specifically with cash flowing assets. And so we can help you accomplish that journey from wherever you are standing right now and so the way that you do that is you can go over to themoneyadvantage.com slash calendar. You can book a initial conversation with our advisors. And this is just a chance to get to know you. You get to know us. We find out, is this a good working relationship? Is this a fit for us to help you accomplish your goals? So just wanted to share that. And then I would love if you are joining us on iTunes later, please go ahead and rate and review this channel that really just helps more people to be able to find us. And also, in case you didn't know, we post this back to our website, which is themoneyadvantage.com. There's a full blog post, any links that we've mentioned, any resources, those are going to be in those show notes, and you'll be able to access everything that we talked about right there. I think that's everything we're going to share today. So in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business that you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary 
of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.